We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. For all the most important transitions, like from being single to a couple, or from life to death, our society has a ceremony to mark the moment. But what about going from child to adult? If nothing particular happens, if we have no rite of passage, how do we know that we've truly grown up? My witness today is Conroy Harris, who is the chief executive of Band of Brothers. It offers rites of passage and mentoring to young men aged 18 to 25 who are at risk or have been involved in the criminal justice system. He's also a mindfulness coach. So, Conroy, how did you know when you became a man and how old were you at the time? That's a really good question to start with, Andrew. I like that one. My truth around that is I didn't know. I had an idea of what I thought I was a man. And I was in the forces from the age of 16 and a half to 21. And so we had particular rites of passages around drinking, going out and uh, getting wasted, so to speak, uh, on, on, on significant birthdays. And it was seen in those days that at 18, being able to go out and do various things, mentals now a man and at 21 as well. It, it took me till I was in my early 30s to realise that that was all rubbish and I wasn't a man. I was an immature child trying to act out as a man. And I was making a lot of mistakes in those years. So in truth, it probably wasn't until my mid-30s until I started taking responsibility for my own actions that I realised, oh, this is what it possibly feels like to be a man. And that only concreted itself in truth when I actually joined the Band of Brothers and realised, ah, this is what it means to be a man in our sense, to be an adult, a form that is taking responsibility, not blaming others for my own failures, stepping away from victim consciousness, so to speak, and actually being a person within my own right. So it took a long time, is my truth. Because I was sort of asking myself the same question, and I remember being dropped off at university by my parents. We sort of looked around the place and off they went, sort of kind of thing. And I was having problems with accommodation, and my parents wrote to the accommodation officer responsible, whose name, amazingly enough, I can still remember, Beryl Reed. can't remember the names of any of my lecturers, most of my colleagues, but I can remember her name. And she wrote back to my parents, we consider our students to be adults and prefer to deal directly with them. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm an adult now. And it's sort of strange. And in a lot of societies, traditional societies, they have a rite of passage mm. where they actually do something. What sort of things might they do? 
So depending on the culture of where people are, the, the idea of rite of passage is is around losing something. So in losing something, letting something go, the, the idea of splitting away from childhood and taking something on. Rite of passage is a step forward into something. So even today in some societies, we see in some cultures where the boys are taken away and there needs to be some level of jeopardy. So one culture that, that I see, they have these ants tied into a glove and the boys have to put the glove on with real stinging, biting ants and often they'll pass out because the pain is just so terrific and, and they'll have to be with that pain for a, a number of moments and then the, the older men will kind of look after them once they come through the other side of that. That's it in one culture I've seen. In other cultures, it's about taking time away. So that people, people are taken away from the village, taken away from the homestead by the older men. They're taken into kind of nature and they're left alone to contemplate or they have to bring something back from a journey or two, two or three day journey where they have to be out into the wilderness on their own and bring again the jeopardy because they may not come back. Something isn't going to come back. And that's the idea. Something needs to be lost and something needs to be gained within that kind of step. And I talk to my clients sometimes about these rites of passage. And I say that often they're actually, and I'm going to put this in inverted commas, kidnapped by the older men. And, you know, their mothers put up a, a fake fight of, oh, don't kidnap my son. And I always ask my clients, why do you think they kidnap them? Yeah. And the answer is, you know, actually, when you've got the comfort of your mother's hearth, you know, with lots of meals and, you know, lots of TLC, I mean, would you voluntarily leave that? I mean, some boys will, they want to go off and explore the world, but it's very easy to stay there in that comfortable place. That's sort of why you need to be kidnapped. Exactly. And often the, the, the men doing the kidnapping will put on masks and things so that they're not recognised by the young men. And again, it's that it's a moment of jeopardy. There's something tearing away. You know, it, 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 some people, as, as you talk about, the, the comfort of the mother, it's also the umbilical cord, the last energetic threads of that, if you, if, if you like, that are kind of torn away at that kid moment of kidnapping. And the, the, the boy is then transported with the possibility of coming back as a man. Yep. And that's what happens at the end. There's a big feast when they come back to the community and they're treated actually differently. They are. It is the most beautiful idea. And I think what's interesting is, with the exception of our societies, every every society that anthropologists study has something along these kind of lines for boys and girls. Although mm-hmm. obviously moving from girl to woman, the body and menstruation is actually going to tell you that there's been a transition, which is actually far more noticeable, isn't it? Exactly. And then just going back to this idea of all societies that do this, an African friend of mine, I was talking to him, and we're talking about the rise in violence against women and girls in certain African cultures. And what he said to me was, since we stopped initiating our young men, we've seen these young men not wanting to take responsibility for their own people and their own village and taking on more this idea of the individual being more important than the whole. And this is where we've seen this kind of rise in these negative behaviours, because that's the change. Once you've kind of had that initiation, these people, the village, they're now your people. So you're not going to go out and harm them. 
so, so it is a really quite important thing that when we see it break down, has consequences for societies. So how did you get interested in this whole area? How did you find your way to Band of Brothers, which I'm guessing was quite a while ago? It was eight years ago now. My, my journey into men's work started sometime before that. In my mental health work, working for Oxfordshire Mind, I was, I'd set up various projects working with men and I'd started to get into this idea around the disparities that exist in society for men around mental health, suicide rates, admission into kind of serious mental health wards, homelessness, seeing lots of young men on the street and thinking, there is something that's amiss in our society when it comes to men. 95% of the um, prison population are male. What is this malaise in kind of masculinity and malehood? And I joined some local men's groups with some friends and started to explore some of these ideas, started doing some reading of my own, things like I and John, and just getting, just starting to get my head around what, what, what is going on for us as a, as, as a collective of individuals that go under this banner called men. So, Conroy, you mentioned a book called Iron John. I'll put the details in the show notes. It's a book by Robert Bly that sort of talks a lot about moving from boy to man, and it unpacks a story, a Grimm's fairy tale, and uses that. An interesting book, and as I say, I'll put the details in the show notes. You were a bit of a lost soul yourself after the RAF. You had a lost period of petty crime, a, a short spell in prison, and homelessness, and being a single father, it sounds really difficult. How did you lose your way from the RAF? It's really quite simple. When I came out, we're talking 1980, 1981, my time in the Air Force, like I said to you, I, I was young, really, really quite emotionally immature. And how it affected me, I was also quite a rebel. And you know, I don't like to, to use these terms lightly, but I, I didn't find my place. We could say that there was some racism around and things like this, but it's more than that. The, the classism that I bumped into was also an issue, being a working class lad. And I struggled that that was the truth. And I got locked up in military correction centres several times. And I didn't fit. I didn't find my place. So this idea that I was somehow not part of society was kind of became ingrained in me. So when I left the Air Force, I started squatting with some friends because there was nowhere for me to go. My father had said to me, if you leave the Air Force, you're not welcome home. And I took him at his word. And so I just went onto the streets. And eventually I, I, that, that, that led into me going into some real negative behaviours, um, squatting, petty crime, drug dealing, and just living quite an itinerant lifestyle for some years. So what was the turning point? Just as you mentioned there, Andrew, it was my children that when their mother became seriously ill with mental health issues and was sectioned, and the, my two children had to come and live with me because that was what social services did, that it was almost like a road to Damascus moment, epiphany. Wow, you're going to actually, you're going to have to change your ways. You cannot have these children see this as your lifestyle. Something has to change from this moment. And it's almost like I, I woke up and a, a, a kind of veil came over off my eyes and thought, right, time to actually get serious about life. And how old were your children at that point? My son was my second son. He was seven and my daughter was four. Wow. So where did you go? How did you, where did you, what was your first step? The veil came off. <laughs> I was living in a bus at the time. This is a... 
I was living in the bus at the back of a farm and just having a real difficult time. My mental health wasn't that great at that time. And everything was falling to pieces around me. And it's interesting, as I took on the children, I'll never forget, it was just before Christmas, my brother came all the way down from Nottingham, picked us up, and we went to Nottingham and had a family Christmas. And by the time I come back, social services had sorted out a bed and breakfast for me and the children. So I had a B&B that started to claim for me and the children, and it kind of just went from there. You know, then the next step was about six months later, as, as things settled, a friend came and says, well, I see you're a mouthy type person. I, you know, I've, I've, I've been on the end of your mouth and, you, you know, you like sticking up for yourself. How about using those skills and becoming and volunteering in the mental health world to become and, you know, and do some advocacy? And I was like, you know what? I've got time on my hands. I'm a kind of single dad now. I pick up the children. We go home. We Cook and we we read stories. I have time during the day to go and test this out, and that's what happened. Then the next step was I went to Ruskin, Ruskin University for people in in Oxford, which gave grants for people who had had poor education, and I went and did a kind of certificate in education for a year. And it was the first time at the age of thirty three, someone told me I had kind of potential to do something with my mind. It was the first time I actually felt as though I was worth something interestingly. And hearing your story, it sounds like sort of, how shall I put it, sort of impromptu mentoring actually was incredibly important. That person who said, look, you're mouthy, you could do this. And, you know, you did it as a volunteer, but that was a form of mentoring. Your brother coming and sort of giving you that sort of break away from your house to be able to look at your life through a slightly different lens and just sort of relax a little bit. Because, I mean, having two children on a bus sounds sounds really difficult. It was freezing, Andrew. It was awful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about how mentoring works then in Band of Brothers. So just going back to what you said then before I go forward, yes, there was a lot of impromptu mentoring. When I when I was at Ruskin, one of the tutors kind of saw something in me and mentored me and helped me along the way as I struggled to actually do assignments and things in mental health matters. I was taken under the wing of kind of people who'd been in the, around a lot longer and, and shown the ropes and again, mentored into how to be an advocate. In a band of brothers, it works very specifically around we train these men. A lot of men do have time. There's a bit of a myth around in society at the moment that men don't want to give anything back, that men just want to take. Actually, that's not been our experience. Men do want to do something in their communities. Men do want to help bring some sense of balance to what they see as what's going wrong. They just don't know where to go. They don't know how to do that. What a band of brothers offers is a vehicle, a vehicle for that community mentoring to, to come in and be part of something that helps change things on within your society. Men come in where they do their rites of passage weekend, and that kind of blows people open. It's not a big grills weekend where we light fires and, you know, hunt things down and, you know, be all stuff and macho. It's actually quite the opposite to that. It's an internal journey. It's an internal journey to the soul. We ask questions about the narrative 
that we've told ourselves is that really true for us. We ask questions, deep questions about where men may have gone wrong in their lives and how it could have been different. And we, we base it around mythological stories. We use a lot of Jungian psychology. We use a lot of mythopoetic kind of work that we do. And so the young men and the older men go through this weekend and it's a real deep dive into their psyche. So what is the jeopardy? Thank you for bringing this up because I always feel this is really important. The person who people think they are when they step up to come onto this weekend, that's the bit that's in jeopardy. You're going to lose something. You're psychoenergetically. You're going to come through what we call the threshold. And on the other side, when everything's broken down, you stand to lose something of your ego. We call it an ego death. The person who you imagine yourself to be, the, the, the man that's got you to where you are now, that somehow isn't quite working for you because you're looking for something, there's going to be some kind of break in that and often a death in that because it has to die because many of us men are socialized in today's society to think of ourselves as Hmm, I have to be careful here. Think of ourselves as kind of almost omnipotent, as kind of all powerful and kind of that everything is about us in the world, because that's often how the world is reflected back at us. And that's not the case. So something needs to go. And that ego death is really helpful to go out. So now who am I going to be? And that's the other piece. What's the offer for myself now? How do I rebuild this sense of self after it's all collapsing so spectacularly around me? <laughs> so no stinging ants then? No stinging ants, unfortunately. Our, our, our health and safety and would not allow for this. No, we, we couldn't get that through a risk assessment, unfortunately. <laughs> no. I sometimes organise a weekend workshop where we do something about the father wound, about the problems with our fathers. And I would do a symbolic wounding where I have some lino that is red and we energetically pretend that it is fire and people have to run through it. I mean, are you doing something sort of symbolic like that or it's not necessary? Yeah, you, you, you've hit the nail on the head that there are symbolic rituals and, and ceremonies. The volunteers arrive on the Thursday to set the camp up. The participants arrive on the Friday evening and they're then in what we call in ritual in ceremony until three o'clock on the Sunday. And there are several of these little symbolic, if you like, trials and things that people have to put themselves through. Everything, obviously. Is, is voluntary, but there's a, this kind of test yourself. Have you come to really kind of uh, give of yourself or notice when it is you're, you're, you're holding back? So yes, there, we, we, we do do that. some of those similar things, I would imagine. So what did you learn about yourself in the transition from boy to man? What do you think is the most important thing that you took away? For me, it was an emotional journey. And what I learned about myself was I had a long way to go, that I wasn't the person who I'd imagined myself to be. And I, I, I had a lot of trappings around identity that just didn't fit the true person I was underneath, that I'd built this complete facade as an individual that just didn't fit. And somehow I had to let that go. I, I learned I was unauthentic. That's one of, you know, I, I was turning up un very unauthentically as a human being, as a partner, as a father still. I still, you know, uh, yeah. In what way inauthentic? 
and authentic that I wasn't being honest to myself. And then by not being honest to myself about what my true needs in life were, who I truly was as a person, I was being inauthentic in relationship. I wasn't able to give the best of myself. I learned that I some of my behaviours were manipulative, controlling in some ways because I needed to protect myself. I learned that there some of my childhood traumas that I buried and hadn't even considered were actually acting out in my life. And I'd been abused sexually as a child and various other things. And I pretended those things just didn't count. And it took me a long time to realize that I was acting from some of those wounds in, in my relationships and in my everyday life. And this is what I mean about inauthentic. I wasn't facing the tr- some of the truths about myself. And so if you are a mentor, it's a bit difficult to mentor if you've got all of these unacknowledged wounds. Do you put adults through your rite of passage? That's exactly the deal, Andrew. The older men, they think, many of them, that they've got it sorted, they've had a successful life, blah, 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 they they, they know themselves. But once they've done the weekend rite of passage, they realise, oh, there is something missing. So the other bit that's really important that we still haven't quite got is the coming back after the weekend. Is You're coming back to your community and they welcome you. Like you say, there's a feast and everything that, and they're all welcome back. We don't have that, but we do have communities. We have 12 communities all the way from Cornwall all the way up to Manchester. And so the coming back is coming back into community where the work for the older men starts, the training starts. There's a, the, the initial six weeks training to learn how to be in circle, to learn how to be kind of the etiquette of being with other men, the etiquette of kind of how circles work. And then we have specific mentor training, different levels for working with, with the young men. So anyone who thinks they're complete, there's still a journey to go. And this is what our training is designed because the young men, as you probably all aware, People who live with trauma, people who live with that level of uh, distress within their world, people in the mental health world, I often found this, they can see through BS really quickly. If you're not being authentic, if you're not being real, they see it straight away. There is no kind of game playing with people who are that wounded living life. So the older men have to find a way to become much more authentic so the young men can look in their eyes and go, yes, there's something there about you that I can see is worth me sticking around for. Because without that, it wouldn't work at all. Well, that seems sort of, I think the word I'm going to use is frightening. (laughs) You know what, Andrea, I'm glad you used such a term because... What we face today in our society is frightening. When we look at the kind of fracture within our structures, when we look at so many of our institutions that are are failing and breaking, you know, who would have thought when we were young men, I would have thought because from the background, who would have thought that the the police, the Met Police and all these institutions would be so, 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 so fragile as to how they support us within our societies, mental health services breaking down, politicians, the internet. It's like there's so many... When I say the internet, a lot of young men go to the internet for their information, so they don't look to mainstream media, and that within itself is frightening. So they're taking on ideas from various internet influencers and all sorts of people that's influencing how they are in the world. So yes, and when we see 
what's going on on the streets, the levels of violence that young men are committing towards each other and towards the rest of us when we see this level of fracture. It is frightening. So unless people are prepared to take on that journey and look at the fear within themselves to be able to stand up, then they're not taking this seriously. That's the way I see this. So if somebody listening to this is a man and they're thinking, you know, I might be chronologically a man. They might be like you. They've gone into the RAF. I mean, you know, if you're going to fight for your country, you must be a man. If you're, <laughs> you know, if you if you're married and you pay your taxes and you have children, I mean, you must be a man. <laughs> but I like your wits, sir. <laughs> but actually, deep down, <laughs> they know that that actually quite a lot of the time there's a, a small boy that grabs the steering wheel of life and sort of drives them into the ditch, so to speak. Yeah. What do they do? Great question. And then this is one of those things. This is the existential thing. We talk about males having midlife crises. Well, what I'd say to those listeners, rather than have an affair with a younger model, rather than go and buy a sports car or or whatever, actually start that journey, that internal journey. You know, some cultures like in Hindu society, it's a well-known phenomenon that once you've been a householder and you get into your 50s and you become more mature, as an older man, you're expected then to go on to that internal journey to truly find who you are within yourself. Our culture doesn't quite mirror that. What we do is we, we have men fall to part. We have the heartbreak of the midlife crisis. And then many men have strokes and heart attacks and kind of wither into the background once their career starts to be not so significant and, you know, they're not seen as important in society. So what I say to you is, no, this is the time for that next rite of passage, for that next step up into, into the next place, into elderhood. We are required. One of the shortfalls of our society is a lack of elders. We have older people. We have very few elders. And we like to call our people elders in training. That's what I am. And I'm an elder in training. Society needs us to hold the frame of what's going on. So unless we do that work, that internal work that, that is required for us to make that step, then we just will become old people who wither away and our care homes are full of them. So actually, becoming an elder is a topic I have covered on this podcast. So I'll put that one in the show notes as well. Connie Zweig is the Jungian therapist who talks about that. So how do we do this internal work? Because, I mean, to be perfectly honest, there are some therapists like myself who would be perfectly happy to talk to you about how to move into this elderhood, particularly if you look for some kind of depth psychology that will be covered in it as well. But there are other ways of doing it. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the, the mindfulness that you do might be a sort of a beginning of this kind of work. What do you think? I think that's a really great idea, actually, that that is spot on. Um, Mindfulness, it gives us an opportunity to really be with self, to really kind of come home to the body, come home to where I actually am. And that just gives us that possibility of slowing everything down and seeing through a different lens and maybe starting to reform ideas about who and what I'm about 
within my life and within the greater part of my society that may be missing from me. So that's a brilliant idea. Find a mindful, and I'd say find an MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, so you can see what's going on with your kind of thinking and how that's affecting the other parts of your world. Coming home to the body, getting into the body, becoming aware of the body, becoming aware of your sense of place in life. These are things that will happen on a mindfulness course and you will learn, you'll start that internal journey and then find a men's group, then come and find the Band of Brothers. (laughs) So coming into your body, now that sounds like it's a very simple thing to say. How disconnected from their bodies do you think most men and young men are? Because on one level, you know, young men are very much in their bodies. You know, they're jumping up and down and climbing trees and all these other sort of kind of things. But are they actually in their bodies? Are they actually in their bodies? Great question. There's two answers to that. There's the first, yes, they're aware that they have a body. And then there's the other side of it. They may not be aware when we say coming into the body, all our trauma, all everything that's happened to us within our life is actually stored within the body. Or the body holds the memory of all kind of our past wounds and our past hurts. And being able to come in and getting to know what it feels like to kind of sit with that sense of how difficult life's been, where pain has been for us, where our emotional wounding is. People say, my heart is broken. Well, rather than go out there, externalise it and drink and take drugs to take the pain away, why don't I sit with that heartache that my body is actually giving me an opportunity to learn more about myself? That's truly coming home to the body. It's not just a physical thing. It's an energetic piece. I'm sorry, but sitting with the pain isn't sounding very attractive to me. I'm speaking as a client here now rather than as myself. But I mean, you know, when I try and sell the idea of let's actually just acknowledge the pain, it doesn't go down very well. It's not going to go down very well in this world of short-term fixing of kind of there's a pill to sort everything out in this world where we just have to look for the answer on the internet. Actually, it's a very simple old idea that to truly help ourselves along the road to levels of healing getting to know our pain. What's the word I'm looking for? It's a counterintuitive piece because something tells me that to push it away is going to be the the remedy here. Where actually by getting to know this and getting to kind of be with this, there's what we call gold in there. And I can drop to a deeper level of knowing myself. Very simply, my resilience as a human being expands the more I can be with the pain. Okay, let's try and bring this down to a sort of a level that we're going to understand. I'm sorry to ask such a personal question, but where did you find the gold in something as horrible as childhood sexual abuse? Oh, yes. Nice one. So for me, the gold in that was the mind then ability to be with other people facing such traumas and ah. facing such pain. The gold from that is like, okay, Rather than that making me a bad person and the things I acted out from that place as a bad person, actually seeing that side of myself as a wounded child trying to find their way in the world and acting out from that place in the world, attacking others from that place, the anger, I was then able to actually be with the pain from that trauma. And being in that pain opened up the possibility of being just more 
comfortable with it. And more comfortable with it, I become more comfortable with others' pain. And sort of on a cellular level, we can sense, I'm going to say smell, the fact that, you know, you've dived down and you've come back and you're okay. That sort of gives us the courage that we could do it too, and that you would guide us in a way that if you haven't actually experienced that pain, you can just be a sort of a, for want of a better word, shouting helpful instructions from the shore rather than actually deep down the well. Again, you're spot on, Andrew. There is something in that shared sense of pain when when we're working with people. I, I like that term when you say we can smell because all our senses are alive when we're traumatized and wounded and we're looking for people that may look into harm us on various levels. Yeah. So we do smell, but we do kind of visually, we pick up kind of inflictions and shifts and where the eyes are moving. So it's all, it's a whole body experience and people do know when, and I, young men say, often say to me when I'm working with them, you've been there, aren't you? You, you, you know what I'm dealing with. And, cause, and I don't have to say anything because they can see, they can feel mm. they know. I don't have to tell them about my past. It's written. But moreover, what they can see is here's a man who's come to terms with that and has learned to live with it. That's the point. And I'm not trying to prove anything to them from that place. Well, we're going to sort of stay on this sort of level of examples by going to a letter. And that's going to happen in just a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to dive deeper into The Meaningful Life, um, there's all sorts of ways of doing it. You can become a supporter and you can get the extra bonus material that comes along with every edition. I'll tell you more about that. You can also get my newsletter and you can write into us. The gateway to all of these, or we're talking rituals, so the threshold for all of these is my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com. Go to podcasts, you'll find a way to sign up for the newsletter, which comes through Substack. You'll also be able to write a letter to us, and this is one that's come in. I was brought up to be active, work through my to-do list, and only rest when I'm shattered. I play tennis and golf, and I'd normally do a park run most Saturdays. The problem is I've been ordered to stop. Now I'm in my mid-50s and my knee doesn't recover as quickly as it used to. My physio says I have to rest it. My wife and daughter say I have to rest it. I know I have to rest it and take things easy for at least the next three months. Except I'm short-tempered. I fly off the handle over the smallest of things and I'm not nice to know. I had a row with the neighbours about inconsiderate parking and where I normally would have run all the thoughts out of my mind, they're left bouncing around getting angrier and angrier. I don't know how to describe how I'm feeling. Stupid? Certainly. Sometimes pathetic. At other times, I feel sorry for myself, like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders. But now I think I'm exaggerating. How do I make it through this downtime without killing someone or at very least punching them? Mm. 
Yeah, for my, my, my heart goes out to this, this individual hearing that because this is classic stuff, really. Socialized into doing, making things happen, being a force in the world. And then when that starts being taken away from us, then the true sense of self starts to come from underneath. And yeah, I, I feel for this gentleman. And what I'd, what I'd say to you is, there needs to be a way that you can learn to have some compassion for that part of you that's really angry and upset with the world. And again, it's come up in this podcast, we've spoke about it, the anxiety and stresses that you're feeling there is right on the edge of what, what I'd call mild mental health issues. And I would say to you that this is time to go and find some help, go and find some help, find a therapist to work with, go and find a mindfulness class to work with and start to bring home this idea that guess what? It is time to slow down. And the slowing down is where you're going to find some truth for yourself about who you actually are in the world. Some gold. I didn't want to say it again, but it is the gold. This is a real, I read it in one of your pieces somewhere, Andrew. This is an opportunity for this gentleman Mm. to see himself in the world differently. So the word that really interested me that you used was you need to find some compassion for yourself. Mm. So where do we start finding compassion for ourselves? Or where does this man start with finding some compassion for himself? By taking what's going on for him seriously and starting to say, I matter to himself. I actually matter. And these things, this anger that comes up inside of me, that's my internal self going, it's calling out to you, sir. It's saying, come and pay some attention to me. And so by taking yourself seriously and by actually starting to do the work, by finding some, just by the effort of bringing up someone who's trained such as yourself, Andrew, someone that's, that does depth psychology, someone that does this type of work and going, can I come and have a session with you? That's starting the road to compassion because you're telling your internal self that you matter and you're going to start to look to yourself and you're, because you're, you are the answer here. It's not, it's not going to be someone else. Someone else like, like an Andrew, like myself can guide you, but you're going to actually have to do the work and being prepared to do the work by making that first step and asking for help is where it starts for me. I would quite like you, instead of running, because you can't go for a run, I'd like you to sit down with a piece of paper and write down all the things that are making you angry at this moment. Mm. You know, I'm angry because I'm, and write all the stuff down. And I want you to just keep going until you've actually run out of things that you're actually angry about, because one angry thought will lead to another angry thought. And hopefully you're going to have like three pages of A4 or maybe five or six. The more the merrier. Don't stop until, you know, the only thing you've got to be angry about is the fact your hand won't write anymore. Put it away for 24 hours and then go back and read it. And instead of actually saying, oh gosh, you know, I was really went off on one there, actually look at what it is underneath that's making you angry. And I'm going to make a a wild guess. If you've got a to-do list, it could be you're doing a lot of things for other people. Mm which is absolutely wonderful, but it actually often you end up with a a feeling or a thought, you know, what are people doing for me? (laughs) Who's paying attention to my needs? And, you know, it could be there hasn't been much room for your needs anywhere. And what are your needs? And I think that is a sort of very interesting place to go into. You know, what do you like and what do you dislike? 
in my um, my writers group last night, somebody was talking about how they once did a, an exercise, and this is a fascinating exercise, and maybe you might like to do this one as well. Spend a whole week where you write down what you like. Now, it could be that you like cream cakes or coffee or alcohol or whatever. You're writing out everything you like. So you're actually aware of all your likes. And then you spend the next week talking about everything you dislike. And you're very aware of all of those. And to like and dislike, you get connected to your body. And the whole exercise is actually getting connected to yourself because you can't have compassion unless you're connected to yourself. Unless you you start to accept yourself. Yeah. And what you're saying there, those exercises, starting to accept that I have needs and some of those needs are not being met and I have resentments and it's okay that I have these resentments. This doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That's part of that journey too. If a person can do that, then brilliant. Because sometimes we think if because we're doing all these things, it follows that other people are going to do things for us. But often we're not quite certain what it is we want them to do. <laughs> and we haven't even asked them to do it. So the chances of them actually being able to do it is possibly quite small. So, you know, we, we do actually need to know what we want. That's one of the things, that's, that's, that's a big piece that for many people I, I speak to work with and many of the men I work with, how to get their needs met is a massive piece because they don't know what their needs are. Because as you say, so much of their life has been spent looking out for others. I, I go to work to look after my family, to pay the mortgage, to do all these things. And everything is externalized. And what are my actual needs apart from a nice Sunday dinner? <laughs> And, you know, we're talking about men, but I think there are going to be lots of women listening to this who are going to be nodding along as well and saying, oh, you know, yes, I spent my whole time looking after other people and how am I being looked after? That's massive. And the, that was one of the big things for me with teaching mindfulness, working with a lot of the women is like, I'm saying to you that your your homework is 45 minutes and a night that you're going to actually have to find the time that is just for you. And you're going to have to put a, a sign on the door and saying, this is my time, my practice. And just that within itself, even if you don't sit there meditating, if you just sit there and take that time, it's the start of saying, I matter and my needs matter. So yeah, it's very important for yes, because again, women are socialized just as men are to be putting everything out there for others and not themselves. Ooh, our society has a lot of problems. And as you said, the line between good mental health and bad mental health is a very thin one, isn't it? Right on the underground on a hot day. <laughs> it's a very thin one and it crosses over because most of us will be suffering some form of stress. And the other piece that a lot of people are missing is since the pandemic, there's an existential kind of stress that's on us to kind of get things back to normal and the way the world is that doesn't not affect us the threat of possible nuclear war that's going on within eastern europe the migrant crisis what that actually is is hundreds of thousands of people leaving their land leaving their homes because they can't live there anymore and moving and looking for safety somewhere else in the world climate change and the effects of that all these existential things are having an effect on us whether we read the news know it's going on or kind of imbibe ourselves all the time with this stuff so of course that line is being pushed at around stress anxiety 
all those little things there that, that lead to positive mental health or poor mental health. So we're almost coming to the end of the main podcast. So I need to ask you, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful, Conroy? Relationships. That's really easy. <laughs> I'm a Libra, so it's relationship. Relationship to others, relationship to self. That's how I find meaning. And relationship, when I say to other, the other can be a tree. The other can, when I walk in nature, relationship to the ground that I'm walking on. My relationship to that relationship to, yeah, the other week I was walking and there was some deer and we were just looking at each other. They didn't bolt. That being in relationship is as just as important as my relationship with my neighbours, with my friends, with myself. And is there an element of passing it on as a way of paying it back? That's another great, passing it on. Because so much of my life has been in service, in service in the mental health world, in service in the mindfulness world. And this role I do here is about service. And that is paying something back to society all the time. It's easy for, for our society to, to promote the ideas that we take. For me, being in service is a way of passing it forward, passing it back. So what we're going to be doing next is the bonus material. And the two questions that are key in the rites of passage that, and that the Band of Brothers asks the participants and the mentors are two questions. Who am I and where do I fit in? And I thought it would be really interesting to look at where do I fit in? Because that is a, a question that, I mean, I personally am... <laughs> I'm working through at the moment. So if you'd like to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. And if you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and unlock all of this material, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.